You're listening to the State of Our Football Nation on FNR. Well, uh, it won't be long before we have a special guest join us. We're going to talk about some uh, very interesting topics. We hope you can stay with us for the hour. George Tanikian, Josh Parrish in the studios at Docklands for FNR. The subject matter, state of our football nation. And before we go any further, our thoughts with all those people in the Ukraine and in Russia. Terrible times. The world continues to surprise, continues to shock. And uh, we keep our our thoughts and... Um, and our prayers for all those people who are right now under attack. It's uh, not what you want to see. You would have thought, Josh, by 2022, we would have grasped that all those things in our DNA, which make us, you know, uh, cavemen, we would have been able to sort out. But clearly, uh, those awful bits of DNA remain in our makeup, I suppose, to, su- to help us survive emergencies and, uh, you know, moments when we need to do something uh, above and beyond. But clearly, clearly it also whack, it also waxes at other times. It also causes enormous grief. Um, I'm, I'm at a complete loss. But let's talk football. Yes, I mean, it's days well, like these. Football seems to pale into oh, insignificance, George. It does, but it sometimes does. It's, it's comforting to talk about these oh, things and, uh, instead of the... Uh, don't say that because I'm still recovering from VAR. <laughs> oh, Oh yeah, um, there are so many things about the game that uh, you know make us sh- shake our heads, ask ourselves when are we going to wake up and work as one? You know, grab all the stakeholders. Um, I'm reminded just this week, uh, Jack Riley, who was one of our superstars of '74, the goalkeeper of the team that actually made it to the World Cup after years in the in limbo in the wilderness, has has said he's so distraught, so disappointed with the lack of real progress that he wants to uh, end his days in Scotland. Now, I know he's got family there, but I would love him to stay right where he is in a beautiful part of Tasmania. Um, There are serious questions that need to be addressed. Let's hope, let's hope out of all the muck and mire, we can get some real positivity through. He said, and and I love this, he believed that we should have, from day one, started a future fund, mm. a future fund for the game to build a war chest. Now, I'm just wondering, there's a lot of talk about this national second division that's just around the corner. And if I'm to believe all the good stuff, 2023 may well be the, uh, the green light to see a second division. Are they thinking about, you know, the 30-odd clubs, have they put their hand up and said, yeah, yeah, we understand that maybe the, the game – when it started, didn't do the right thing, but we're going to do the right thing. I think we should talk to the man at the top, uh, the chair of the AAFC, Nick Galatas. Nick, do you understand where we're coming from? Jack Riley has always believed that the game was good enough, smart enough, and should have had a future fund built into it. Good bloke, Jack, um, and good keeper. Um, good day, George and, um, and Josh. Um, as you said, George, off the top, um, uncomfortable times to be Yes, very about. much so about these sorts of things, but perhaps maybe apt and not to belittle what's going on, but maybe we're talking unity here at least, if not, um, you know, unity around the world. But that's what we're about. And as I said, I'm not, not to belittle for one moment um, what's going on in um, in Ukraine and people around there who obviously are particularly stressed at this point in time, if not much, much worse. So, um, but here we are, so we carry on with our lives. And um, to your question, George, yes, um, I Jack is someone who obviously was greatly invested in the game throughout his throughout his life, a player, administrator, supporter, fan, um, and always had great ideas. So I know where he's coming from, and really what his um, uh, his I think comment was directed at was. Some a response. It's really a response comment to the predicament the game is in, and there's lots of responses, possible responses. We um, are looking to sort of contribute to that, and our clubs are coming at it from the right perspective. They've um, they're still there. Um, they're they're survivors. That's what they've been for the last um, whatever number of years each of them has existed. Minimum fifty to six, I think six is the average. Um, and what they want to do is contribute. That's what we're about, and that's what I'm here to talk about: how we contribute. Um, to 
growing our game. It's really just about growing our game. Let's not forget, let's not focus on being the best for a minute and always those sorts of things, which mm. is the ultimate aim, but let's just focus on growing the game. And if we think we've got a, a game that's, gr- that's larger and united, then we'll find our level. And whatever that level is, we'll be comfortable with it because it will be our level. Mm. Uh, so let's let's find it. Let's get there. Uh, Nick Galatas is our special guest on State of Our Football Nation on FNR. George Danekin along with Josh Parrish. We're talking about the possibility that in the best possible light, there's a national second division up by 2023. There's a Women's World Cup just around the corner. Have we got yes. have we got enough expertise and uh, desire to see all of these things roll up and make 2023 almost a watershed year? I think so, uh, George. And not only that, I, it's it's part of momentum, and I think it's uh, I don't see it as a, as a dilution of expertise. I see it as um, a coming together of expertise and a focusing of the mind, and that's what it does. The World Cup it focuses all of us on football, um, and it focuses the mind. It, it, it um, it makes us, or it gives us momentum, um, and it gives us impetus. So yes, there is enough um, expertise, intelligence, will um, around this country, uh, experience, um, and um, absolute and, and faith in what we're doing. So yes, is the short answer, George. There is. Well, we know AAFC has been putting out reports into the feasibility of a national second division and proposed models for quite some time, but this is your final mission statement uh, that's come out this week. Tell us, uh, if people haven't read it, what are the headline items, decisions and, and findings uh, that have come forward in this report? Okay. Firstly, to place them in some context, um, Josh, Football Australia has said time and again and has repeated recently, it will introduce a national second division. So that's the starting point. It will introduce a national second division and it's talking about 2023 where we're very hopeful that can happen by 2023 and expected to. So what we're saying is that when you look at it, where's it going to come from? Who's going to comprise this this new competition? It will be existing clubs. We don't see, um, um, or there might be a, a, a coming together of some of them, but we don't see new entities being formed specifically for the purpose. It will be current top tier next level clubs below the A-League who will comprise it. So therefore, we've come together and we've thought, okay, what can we do? What's the best we can do? Not what's the uh, what's the outlier, what's what's the dream we can do? What's the best we can do to start with? Because we all agree we must start. So if we don't start, we'll be here talking about it when, you know, and the next generation is, um, the next Josh, George and Nick will be here in about 20 years discussing what a good idea this might be. Huh. So let's not, let's not do that. Let's start. So the headline is, where can we start? And we're saying we can put somewhere between 12 and 16 teams together and work, uh, in the first year, and they're going to have 20-odd players each. So let's call it 300-odd players. That's 300 new positions mm. um, for mostly, and I say mostly, mostly young players will populate this because that's who will be attracted to it, plus coaches, plus administrators at a higher level. Let's not forget that. Plus new money wanting to sponsor. Let's not forget that. So these are the these are the other headline items. There'll be a new competition, impetus given and underpinning the A League. We're not here to you know knock it over or destroy. We're here to underpin it. We're here to bring our game together and to give the, the A League, which is sort of floating up there now by itself, um, a base, something below to give it some strength. And that's what we want to do. And we're saying there's a bunch of clubs out there, and this is the, our ethos. When we cut through it all, guys, when mm. we yeah, we've been thinking about this for a long time, and I certainly have, and writing about it and considering it and distilling it. And what it amounts to is there's a lot of clubs out there. We've got a lot of clubs in this country, but we're preventing them from reaching the, um, the capacity and the potential. So if we just don't do that, if we let them rise, let, the, let, let those who wish, those who are ambitious, those who are aspirational, those who are capable, if we just allow them to reach their potential, we will have another... 10, 15, 20 clubs that will rise above their current station and they will be stronger clubs. And if you look around the world, it's not it's not World Cups that that bring the game, make the game stronger in those countries that win them. It's a strong game that makes them win World Cups. It's the other way around. So that's why I think we, we miss. We look at an Italy or a Germany or a Brazil or someone who wins a World Cup and we say, oh, look at that. They've won World Cups, look at their game. But it's the other way. They've had a strong game. They've got lots of clubs. Therefore, they produce lots of players. Um, there's a culture of football within those countries, facilities everywhere for players to play. And as a result of that, guess what? Surprise, surprise, good players emerge. Um, and that's what we need to do. Now, it's going to take time. 
This is not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. We're not suggesting for a minute that what we produce is going to somehow solve every single problem and it'll be wonderful and fantastic. And this is it. This is not the one thing that is missing. It is a key thing that is missing. What we need is more good, strong clubs. Uh, and that will, I think, unite people. It will give people faith. It will give people that want to uh, drive and, and, and have ambition for the game um, and a willingness to achieve and to reach the top um, the go-ahead, the green light to do so. And that's good for everyone, absolutely everyone. Nick, Nick Galatas is the chair of AAFC or AAFC, which is the the body of clubs, 30 of them, 30. How do you get – Nick, just humour me for a moment. How do you get 15 or, or 16 clubs – you know, in this nas- second national division or this A Lady League Two, for example, um, from thirty. I mean, s- somehow we've got to we've got to call or we've got to use the lottery system. I know tonight in Australia there's a lottery for 120 million, which is absurd when you consider that I grew up with the Sydney Opera House lottery, which was one million dollars, the grand total of a million dollars, Nick. Can George, you believe it? Can you believe I it? I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up long after you. I'll tell you where I grew up. I grew up watching the cut slotto draw on a Saturday night with Mary Hardy. And, and it was a hundred thousand bucks. What was it? Mike Williams. And I got to a million or so. And, oh, I, wow. and I was watching. And I was watching that for the simple reason. I remember on the Penthouse Club because Hugh Johns would come on with, on Star Soccer at eleven or eleven thirty, <laughs> uh, intru- uh, holding an umbrella in the rain, uh, introducing introducing the game. That's when it became a Leeds tragic. And you know, let's not talk about that today. Wow. Um, and um, and that's and that's what. But that, that's part of culture. And that was my that's what brought me into it at the time. As a young kid, I was six or seven, because I'm a Greek background, my parents didn't have any problems with me being up at midnight, but that tell them all of that. That's just between us, George, um, here. And so and that and that's that's the culture of the game. So yes, um, uh, you know, we've got 30 clubs. There's more than that, of course, interested around the country. These are 30. We've got many more members than 30. Let's not forget that. But you've got, got 30 100. solid signatures. We got, yeah, because it didn't get every club in the NP, in, in our membership. We, we represent the NPL. We haven't asked all of them to join what we've termed our partner group. We, we formed the partner group and this group of clubs, ambitious, aspirational clubs for the game. Not all of them are going to make the second division, then they know it. You know, among them, they know who's front and centre and who's a little bit behind, but there's unity among them. They're not all clamouring to be in in year one, but they've all put up the same amount of money. They've all put up the same amount of commitment, time and effort over the last year and a half to produce this report. And it's a piece of work that I think we should all be proud of as as a football nation uh, because it represents, these clubs represent um, people from around the country. There's Perth, there's Adelaide, there's Tasmania in here, there's Newcastle, there's Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, of course, and Queensland, all represented in this group. So this is the football nation coming together, representing volunteers around the country, putting together a report, which we are proud of because it's something that represents a lot of work, a lot of hard work, and a distilling of the history of this country's football and its capacity into the future in a document. So we're very, very proud of it. We think, um, uh, and we're proud of the unity, as I say, within it, because the clubs aren't fighting among themselves. They're together and they've signed it. They've put their name to it front, front and centre and they said, here we are, we can do it, give us a chance. And, I mean, what more what, what can you ask for um, as, as a football nation to say, look, these clubs that have been there forever, who have really been going under through some restrictive times uh, in what they you know can and can't do, uh, in this in the silo in which they find themselves, and two years of COVID later, let's not forget, mm. here they are putting up the cash, uh, putting up the time, the effort, um, and the commitment. So that's where we are, George. Uh, we've heard, you know, I was going to make a joke about hurting the cats, mm. but the reality is, I haven't had to do that. Um, they've all come together willingly um, and cooperatively. Well, I mean, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, the preferred model in this report for the National Second Division is a full, genuine home and away season as opposed to a sort of conference or Champions League style format that's been mooted as an option by Football Australia and others in the past. Uh, how do you plan to solve the tyranny of distance mm. and the expense of staging a genuinely national competition with a full home and away season? Are we going to make the country smaller, Josh? No, There's <laughs> a lot we can do. Look, um, no one is is pretending there aren't challenges, uh, and this country, you know, presents challenges. 
And in the end, it's about what's the best model, not what's an ideal model, and not how would we structure this if we had a chance. I mean, yes, we, we don't have 50 million people living um, in, a, in the place the size of Victoria. Um, that's not the and, – and that's just a reality. So what we're going to do is – make sure that the economics of this model work. And that includes taking into account travel. So travel's a cost, no mm. doubt about it. Um, and it's a cost that some countries don't have. But when you look at the alternatives, and everyone does, and they say, oh, how do we solve travel? Let's look at breaking up the country in two and having conferences. Well, there's a cost to that. And the cost, the other cost that, to that is opportunity cost. You don't, you know, no one has Melbourne and um, Sydney in the same conference when you do that. They've got Sydney and Brisbane or New South Wales and Queensland, and they've got some sort of configuration of the South, which doesn't quite make sense either when you think about it, because it's lateral and it goes all the way across to Perth or Adelaide. And and they they come up with these sorts of configurations that are, um, don't solve the problem while adding a problem. And that is they add an opportunity cost whereby top derbies won't happen Mm. because of so we, we have to look at that. And, and so the, the solution, therefore, lies in having a sustainable model in other areas of its cost, accommodating the trouble. That's what's going to happen. And, we, and we, we outline that in the report. We say that where we start is not where we finish. So we've got to accommodate that at the beginning. We've got to make sure that what we um, pay uh, players, what we, what we take into account accommodation, we might, for example, initially uh, focus on not so many overnight stays when we have interstate games. Um, try and build games into daytime That's to start with to ensure that the first year or two we launch well um, and we launch sustainably and then we we, we go from there. Uh, and we're having productive discussions with lots of people about that, productive discussions with the PFA about that, how that might work um, and productive discussions, of course, with FA um, so that we make sure that we're all on the same page um, with the common aim of this thing's got to happen. So what's the best way for it to happen? And that's what we've considered in the report, the best way for it to happen. Now, just listening to you talking about that and uh, framing it in the language that you did, it suggests to me that the conversation started, you said young players. This is how we're going to be able to fill this competition. It won't be with bringing players in from outside for you know big amounts of money because what it is, it's about getting the next generation of potential Ollie Roos, Socceroos, Matildas and whatever, yep. a chance to, exactly. to play regular competitive football, which is the one complaint we hear from every tier of our game, don't we? Exactly, George. Exactly that. And one more thing. Um, I think a player needs to be able to see, legitimately see, a way forward. And you, you see... You mean in linear terms... Yeah, in linear, in linear terms. So what, what happens is a player, you know, starts to stress at 16, 17, 18 years old because they can see, okay, I'm in the NPL, where am I at exactly? If I don't make if I don't get picked up next year by an A-League Academy, where am mm, I? Mm, if I don't get, mm. well, what, what, you know, and that's that coincides with year 12, year 11, first year uni. There's a lot of other, other um, competing um, factors that go into a young person's life. And mm. if they've got an opportunity to stay in the game, we lose them. Things. We lose it them. Does yeah. Well, that's right. It does two things. It keeps them in the game, and they therefore they may want some of those may go on. Um, not all, of course. No. But the other thing it does, and let's not forget the other thing, and that is that we get more players playing longer, and that's a good in itself. Not all of them are going to play for the Socceroos and the Matildas. We yep. know that, or, or or make it overseas in some club or in the A League. But what they will do is stay playing in the second division. Some of them, or then having had an experience of five, ten, fifteen years in the game of enjoyment and taking out, put back in. Mm. That's culture. That's mm. how culture happens. It doesn't happen by disaffecting players, losing them at 17, 18, 19, having paid all their NPL fees um, and getting parents and players unhappy because, you know, they, they got dropped off at 18 and had nowhere to go. And, and that's the bridge that's missing and we hope to provide. You speak of the bridge and I reflect on all the clubs, all the great community clubs that have been part of Australia's football history and I can say with great clarity and great faith that the South Melbournes, the Sydney Olympics, the Melbourne Knights, the, uh, the clubs that have, you know, the Arpias of the world, um, they, they have been, as you say, at the very top end of the cultural story. They've been yes. seeped and, and that's how they've enriched their communities, one, their cities, two, 
and uh, our football history, three. Yep. And, and we've got a, this concept of, of respect involved here as well, um, George, and concepts of, um, of justice. And when you contribute, you know, you want to be acknowledged, you want to be understood, you want to be respected. And when, and when you're not allowed to do that, and when you're told, no, 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 you must direct all your resources one way or the other, you can't be what you can be, mm. people, you know, they, they don't take kindly to that. And even those who are, you know, there's some people who are angry, but there's some people who just walk away. Mm. You know, they lose interest. That's the majority. The majority aren't, you know, um, expressing anger and frustration. They just walk. They, 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 don't, they don't engage. And we, and we think there's a lot of goodwill in the game we can recover for the game as a whole. Uh, and that includes our top tier at the moment for everybody. If you flag to them, you're wanted, you're needed, you're part of it, you're a chance to be part of it, mm. and to do it on your terms, not to do it on what someone tells you to do. You know, you, you, if you don't hurt when your team loses and you don't feel exhilarated when your team wins, you're not going to stick. You know, if you just go along and have a look and say, oh, that was nice, you're not going to stick. And I think that's part of what we're seeing at the moment. I mean, why is it that I hurt more when Leeds loses than when a local team loses now? It shouldn't be the case. Uh, as a Spurs man, I bleed every time yeah. we lose, and yeah. we lost at Turf Moor this morning, and I'm feeling yeah. sick. Good, because that's, I, I did too. Yesterday, right? Burnley, Burnley shouldn't be winning at the moment. That's another story. Let's not go there. Oh, yeah. um, so, yes, but that's that's what we want to, go. We want to make sure we engender into all of this, that we, we have – people who choose a club that they love and they stick with them uh, and, and that they respect them and that we have a competition that is understood, respected for what it is. It doesn't have to be the greatest. We know it won't compare to you know, EPL or La Liga or, you know, Serie A or Bundesliga. That's not going to happen and let's not kid ourselves. But who cares? If we've, got a, if we've got a league that we like, we've got clubs that we love and we're watching good football, we're, we're going to be all part of it. We're going to go along on the weekend and watch our team play. Uh, whoever, whoever, whichever team that may be. And if a team needs to drop into a low division or rise into a high division, that's all. how exciting, how fantastic. Imagine getting facilities built because your team's gone up a level, um, partaken of some more income upstairs through broadcasting or whatever, and then you drop and then you've got this great little pavilion that you wouldn't have otherwise had or mm. a grandstand. I mean, it doesn't need to be we're fixed in a position uh, of treading water our whole lives. Let's, let's allow this game to grow. That's what we're about. We just want to allow it to grow uh, and stop it and and take away the restrictions we have artificially put in. I, I've said, George, time and again, go back 20 years um, and look at what we did. We put seven teams in this country, seven alone. You talked about the distance and the tyranny of distance. Well, in this big, wide brown land, we thought it was a good idea to go with seven teams, one in, one in each city, no more than one. Forget the fact that we've now changed model. Everyone forgets that, that we've mm-hmm. gone from an intercity to an intra-city model. Mm-hmm. We put seven teams in place, men only, no women, no juniors, Simp- simply men, uh, in, a, in a country the size of Australia, one in New Zealand, seven in Australia, and told every other team, you, you're not going anywhere. That's what we did. Let's put it bluntly. That was the, that was the model, and someone thought that was a good idea. Now, that's not to say that what was there before it was perfect and brilliant, but let's look at what we put in place and how we can improve things. And we're saying if we've learned anything from the last 20 years, it's that doesn't work. What works is allowing the best to, um, to reach their potential. That's what works. So let's, let's allow that to happen. Speaking of which, when will the promotion and relegation to the state MPLs come in? Because we know getting promotion and relegation to the A-League is a, is a longer-term goal of this competition. Uh, but when will we have a connected pyramid downwards? Uh, according to our model, we start off immediately doing that. Um, now, of course, um, you know, we'll, we'll consult with the member for uh, the FA. will take the, the lead on this shortly when they, they've got a dedicated resource they're going to appoint to this to bring it home. Um, and no doubt there will be discussions with how that works and that part of that will be when will the season run and how will it connect to the NPLs and there's a bit of some mechanics to work out which hopefully with goodwill that won't be difficult but our view is from the start because the last thing we want is to create yet another um, um, uh, chasm and yet another silo where 12 teams come in off the top or 14 or 16 to start with they grow, they strengthen um, and then no one can jump into that. Mm. So we say we want a fluid system from the outset, which will also take away the pressure from 
everyone wanting to join in year one, thinking if we don't, we're not in. So if you think, okay, I'll be ready by year two, year three to challenge through the NPL, that allows an organic, um, orderly way of doing things. So we're going for it, Josh, from day one. That's our that's our model. We say that works best, but we'll see how um, what else is put to us and what else is proposed by member feds and FA and others. But our, our uh, position is clear in the report. So what's next? What's next is um, Football Australia uh, are about to, as we've said in our press release, it's imminent we understand, to appoint someone. Um, I believe that someone will be a very well-regarded, uh, well-credentialed, well-motivated, experienced person. Um, and I think uh, everybody will work with Football Australia and that dedicated resource to bring it home in the next few months to actually finalise this model. I mean, we think we've done the work, most of it. There's a bit more to do, but, you know, it's filling in gaps. And uh, football should go to the board, as I understand that probably in the second half of this year, hopefully earlier, earlier rather than later for approval. And then we go through the, um, let's get the clubs who are going to play sorted and ready to start. That's where we are. You know, we wish you all the very best, uh, Nick. Uh, it's uh, a terrific opportunity to have you on board and to uh, to give you an opportunity to give us a, the latest and give us a sense of just what is being planned behind the scenes. Almost enormous to see 30 clubs actually put, you know, signature down and say we yep. want to be a part of it. That yep. ex- that That's exhilarating. Um, I understand that there will be minor hurdles and, and obstacles and, uh, the occasional ego because it, that's that's the game and it yeah. happens around the world. But I'm yes. also reminded of two magic moments in Australian football history when South Melbourne sent a team as champions of Oceania to South America to play some of the biggest teams in the world and the next team that had the opportunity was the Wollongong Wolves. Unfortunately, I think the tournament was uh, stalled or had to be postponed for other reasons. But two clubs, and one actually played, South Melbourne won, Wollongong Wolves two. They had the opportunity to, to showcase and represent the, 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 the country known as Australia down under. Now, yep. that's, that's remarkable. World yes. Club Championship. So yep. as you touched on earlier, okay, we don't want to be the Bundesliga. We can't possibly be the CDR. We can't possibly be the EPL, but we can be our own best league. And exactly. we still have the opportunity, the way the world competitions align and allow us, if we're good enough, to make ourselves uh, available. Which will happen every now and again. And, and the countries that aren't the, the, the embedded best will have their day. Australia has a day. We all celebrated Iceland not so long ago having yeah. a run. Yeah. And the smaller countries... You know, well, which we are one, and that's a reality. Uh, have their day; they come through. You look at the Europeans. You know, the Den- the Denmark's, Greece's, Sweden's, Norway's have had their run. Bulgaria, Romania—they're not up there all the time, but every now and again they produce it. You know, a-, a super team locally which has a run, and that's what we we can do as well, and we can do it regularly, provided we've got a base. That's yeah, what we've got to do. I was going to say, look at look at Hungary, which has been yep. in the wilderness for years, and it's yep. and in the forties and fifties they were the benchmark. Yep. And remember that bloke called Ferenc Pushkas? Gee, um, interesting you should drop his name. There's a statue outside Amy Park that uh, should be removed and put in the front of Bob Jane Stadium or Lakeside. Is that a possibility? Is that a chance? I think so. That would be be seriously wonderful on about 50 different levels. Yep. Yep. Great stuff. All right. Thank you, Nick, for, for joining us and for giving us, again, an overview of something seriously exciting. Let's make it all possible and uh, keep us abreast of what's happening. And if we can help, let us know. Absolutely, George. Thank you very much for your support. Both of you. Thanks, George. Thanks, Josh. Pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure. Thanks, Nick. We'll go to a short break and uh, we've got more guests coming up on the other side. Fantastic. So stick around. You're listening to the State of Our Football Nation on FNR. George Danikian, Josh Parrish. We've been talking football for the uh, last half an hour or so, a little bit more than that. Uh, We have an hour at our disposal on Football Nation Radio to talk about all things that matter in the state of the game. We've had a chat to Nick Galatas, who's talked to us about uh, an exciting initiative. A lot of work being done behind the scenes 
to make an A-League 2 a possibility. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it means it's a possibility. And the framework, the, the, the scope of what's being planned, the fact that they've spoken to the Players Association, the fact they've spoken to everybody involved and said to them, we want this and we think we can get it done. And it sounds seriously exciting. But as exciting as that is, I've spent the last few days fuming, <laughs> reading, <laughs> reading Twitter and thinking to myself, just relax, folks. Relax. I know it was awful. And if you're a Central Coast Mariners fan and, and, and someone who loves their team, and boy, hasn't your team under Nick Montgomery been fantastic. Um, they just won't quit. There is no quit in their game. But one of the referees made a couple of mistakes. Um, I'm just reminded, and I'm, I keep <laughs> saying to myself, if I had been sacked, or if, I, if they had said to me, we're going to sack you if you keep making mistakes, um, how long I would have lasted in television. Um, I made plenty of mistakes. It was part of the growing, the learning. And if you, unless you stretch yourself, unless you're trying to be better, yeah, and remember, and you're a, ref- you're a referee. You understand how difficult it is at that precise moment to have the professional set of eyes on that decision that just went on and saying, I'm going to award this team or that player a free kick. Now, I've gone to the source now. I've gone to an ex-FIFA ref, someone who knows the game better than most, and I've asked him and I've wanted to ask him this question for a few days now. Um, and we should introduce him. Chris Bambridge, are you there? I'm here, George. Hi, guys. How are you? Welcome to the program. Um, you know what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you, what should we do to a referee that's had a couple of things mucked up? Oh, get rid of him straight away, George. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Jeez, that was quick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> No, you know there's a no, bigger you know there's a bigger problem in the game if we do, I do. that. I do. And look, if this had been in my situation, um, it would not be as it is now. Uh, many years ago, there was not the scrutiny, there was not the TV, there were not the um, various different organisations that chase these things through. It would happen on the weekend. Uh, the incident would go. And most of the people that were at the game by the next weekend, unless they haven't get me again, would have forgotten it. <laughs> now, with the scrutiny that these poor referees are under, not only at A-League level, but also here in Victoria at MPL level, um, social media is just, seriously, it's having a great effect on referees, on their mentality, their reactions to what they see their future as, and some of them don't see a future. Um, If I can take this down 16 pegs, it's the same with junior referees being abused by parents. That's where we lose them. So what we need to do, in my opinion, is not uh, start to demote them, take them off games, move them down leads. What we need to do is to educate them. Um, And I'm assuming, guys, that the situation in the A-League is exactly the same as it is here in Football Victoria. And that's exactly through our coaching system what we are trying to do. Um, Chris, we are sorry, just Chris, Bambridge yeah. is our, yeah. Chris Bambridge is our special guest on FNR. He is uh, ex-FIFA referee. He's he's, he's he's looked after games at international level and across the, uh, across the world. And currently... He's part of that select team that reviews the performances of the MPL referees. Correct, Chris? The Football Victoria referees, yep, yes, MPL right. referees. So if I, if I was to say to you, what's the best advice you have for the referee that's currently in question? What do we do? Okay. What's, what's the best remedy? One, for the junior referees for the, and for the game, to move the game forward. Yep. I think the initial reaction to your question, George, is it is exactly what um, we are doing here in Victoria. First of all, we need to identify the problem that the referee has and how has he dealt with it at the time, this particular incident. Nowadays, those referees have the opportunity to review that later in the week with a coach. Um, 
and the reports that they received from the coach. And we were once upon a time called inspectors. <laughs> now, that to me is someone on a tram in the city um, who looks for a ticket. Nowadays, it's more about the coaching of referees. So what we need to do is identify the perceived problem, get the referee to accept that possibly he has erred in his judgment, and then talk about how we can resolve the problem and how uh, we can get that referee to make better decisions in the future. Now, I understand the VAR comes in and all of that, but at local level here, what we do with the referees, once their report is done, it goes off to uh, Michael Fabian, who is the head of referees now in Football Victoria. That man reviews every game in the NPL every week. And by the following weekend, he goes back to each referee with a resolution to any key match incidents or KMDs, as we call them, that occur in a game. And this year, to be truthful with you, we have been instructed as coaches, assessors, to look for two I struggled last weekend on my game to find one key match incident. Um, there was one that resulted in a penalty not being given. That referee has been consulted. He's been, if you like, shown the error of his ways, but he's also been asked how he can improve himself. And that is what they are doing at this level. Um, and most referees, I'd say 98% of our referees at this level and AV level are the first people to self-analyze and admit they've made a mistake. It's about education, George. You know, I was going to say, Chris, as you were talking and you were reflecting on what was going on, uh, you reminded me of um, uh, an incident a a lifetime ago now. Um, I had uh, a guy called Bruce Gingell, and Bruce was, you know, had just come back from Britain. Uh, He'd made an awful lot of money for Lord Lou Grade, and he he was uh, charged with creating this new television station down under that morphed and became SBS. And you know the first thing he gave me? It was one of the very first VCR or better cam recorders. And you know why that was? Right. You know what that was? Yep. So that I could, I could review my nightly news effort and if I'd made an error, to see it and to fix it so that I wouldn't continue yes. to make the same sort of errors. Now, he said, you make different errors, that's fine. If you keep repeating the same errors, we've got problems. Now, is that the same sort of thing with, with the refereeing? It, can you, yes, see, it can you yeah. see if the referee's making a, 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 like a very similar, uh, not error, but omission time and time again based on certain things? And is it always about being in the right position? Because you know what perspective perspective does it changes your view on everything that's correct that's correct and and it is about it's about fitness and i have never seen our referees both at a level international level um, and even npl level as fit as they are at the moment now fitness can be a prime fact in uh, you making the right decision it's if you use that fitness and you get into the best position possible to make the correct decision. We had an incident in a game that I reviewed last week that I was at. There was an incident that I believed in the second minute of the game was a penalty from my position 60 metres away from the incident. The referee was no more than 15 metres, decided to play on. When we reviewed it, and we reviewed it with the referee, first thing he said was, I can't repeat the first thing he said, but the second (laughs) one was, yes, yes, I made an error. And he knew it. Mm. What that meant to him, then we talked about it, and the outcome was, he said, not me, Mm. if I'd have been slightly more to the left, I would have had a better angle. So he resolved his own problem. So now he's looking, the next time he he referees, when the ball is going into that particular part of the field of play, moving more towards the left so that he's got a, a better view of any prospect of anything happening on the side of the penalty area. That wasn't me. That was him that did it himself. And our referees at that level are doing that all the time, George. Believe me. Chris, it's Josh here. Uh, I just wanted to expand upon that. Now that the referees in the top division have access to VAR, they ostensibly have the means to do that there on the spot and re-referee their own mistakes. 
And yet we did see yeah. in the A-League game recently, you know, that Sean Evans did have a couple of opportunities to fix those mistakes and, you know, he either made it worse or he didn't didn't change it. So, I mean, it's obviously different when you're in a, a review setting and, you're, you know, you're off. You don't have the attention of the crowd and the coaches yelling at you from the sidelines and so forth. Um, it's mm-hmm. obviously a different environment. But uh, how do we train the referees to identify the mistakes on the monitor quickly and fix them? Just that's, that's very difficult, and I, I don't know if I have the answer to that because I was never exposed to the VAR. Sure. George would tell you I would have loved the VAR in 1986, <laughs> but you didn't exist. <laughs> so, look, in all seriousness, yes, they are under immense pressure, and I saw a game in the EFL a couple of nights ago, seven minutes to review a penalty decision. For me personally, that is ludicrous. It should be one viewing, three or four cameras, yes, no, let's get on with the game. Spot on. Um, but in answer to your question, I don't think I have an answer to your question. We have to work on that with these referees um, because many of them are taking, along with the VAR, to get to the right decision and sometimes that decision is not correct. And that was the whole purpose of the VAR, to make sure that the decisions were correct. Now, I haven't seen this game, to be perfectly blunt, Um so I don't know whether the right decision was made or not, but obviously from the furore that's going on yeah. and continuing to go on, it seems that it wasn't. Uh, my my great uh, complaint was all the people on the periphery screaming for the referee to get ditched or relegated or whatever, I'd like them to stop talking. I understand their frustration. They were fans first sure. and then they are whatever they are. Sure. But uh, but sure. we've got to understand the damage we do to the game. If we if we we scare the hell out of referees, we're not going to get people wanting to be, you know, referees. So we've got to help. We've got to protect them, especially at the lower leagues, that you, as you rightly touched on. But in order to yep. grow the game, and and it applies to everybody. If you're going to make a better bricklayer, if you're going to make a better broadcaster, get them in there, talk to them, and showcase uh, their strengths and their weaknesses. And ultimately, if if they're any good. They'll survive. If not, they'll move on and become bricklayers or something else. You're exactly right. And and the thing, as you said before, George, we need to to take these people under our wing and educate them properly, try to resolve the issues that they've got and send them back out. Please, please don't let's start demoting them, moving back to the state league and all this rubbish because that will not help them. And bigger than that, it won't help the game. No one is bigger than the game. Um, You know, when referees retired, you know, Tony Boscovich retires, Banbridge retires, Melody retires. Oh, the game's coming to a standstill. No, it doesn't. The game goes on. But Mm. we did it of our own volition. We weren't forced out of the game. And what's happening at the moment, sorry, I'm not saying it's happening at the moment, but it will if if people continue to berate referees the way that they do, particularly in social media. I don't even read it, to be perfectly yeah, yeah. Smart man. And, and nor should you. Uh, <laughs> Chris, uh, thank you so much for your insights today. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch up with you again down the track. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Well done. Thank you. Chris, Chris Bambage. Yeah, he's just awesome stuff. And we've got another guest. You just don't miss a beat, do you? We, we, we get the waiting room going and yet another guest arrives. Who do we have this time? Well, uh, we'll have her with us in a moment. Uh, she's joining us now. Oh, Fantastic to have uh, her insights. But there's a reconciliation action plan, uh, George, that uh, that Football Australia has put together. So, I think we'll join her on the other side of a quick break. But uh, Courtney Haig will be with us very shortly. Fantastic. You're listening to the State of Our Football Nation on FNR. Football Nation Radio, George Danikian in the studio alongside Josh Parrish. We're at the Docklands, but we're going to go again uh, via Zoom to some extraordinarily uh, remote sp- spot. I think it's called Sydney. <laughs> Different time zone, <laughs> uh, Courtney, George, I think. Yeah, Courtney Hagen. Well, she'll probably feel like that. She'll say, what have you guys done to me? I, th- I thought I was going to be on air an hour ago. Uh, Courtney, our, our humble apologies we are big fans. Whenever people have, uh, you know, great passion and great drive and they believe in something, 
as you do, um, we should never let them down. And I apologise. Um, <laughs> welcome to F&R. Thanks for having me, Buzz. And no stress at all. I actually thought <laughs> I was speaking in half an hour, so um, <laughs> I didn't know. So it's all good. <laughs> now, now, listen, you have, you have about the longest uh, title on in Australian football at the moment. What is it? Read it out to us because I, I can't believe it's it's a line long. Yeah, uh, it's engagement lead Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, now, I would say I'm actually reporting to Sarah Walsh, who's Head of Diversity Inclusion, uh, like, for, like Legacy of the World Cup and Women's Football. So I think she must like <laughs> those long titles I was going to say we've got to get an acronym or something. I was going to say you're very shrewd because what you've done in one wonderful sentence is you've demoted yourself to second and you've put your leader up front. Beautiful, you've got a long future, my girl. Um, Can I just say, Jade North is a tremendous character. He's played the game at the highest level. Uh, We love him, uh, and you guys are locked at at the hip with this sensational initiative. I just want to know, what have you discovered? Why did we allow the the AFL, the NRL, basketball and everybody else to leapfrog over us? Because I'm old enough, uh, Josh not so much, but I'm old enough to remember some, some fantastic names, Charlie Perkins, Harry Williams, who were right in the thick of it, playing some super football, being representatives of their people. Uh, at a time when it wasn't so fashionable. So how have we gone from being so open and so progressive to being so dumb? I wouldn't call it dumb. Um, we were, but... we, because you don't leave a resource like that. I mean, Kevin Sheedy, to, in my mind, is one of the greatest visionaries on the planet. I don't care what country we're talking about. He saw a future and he went after it at a time when there are a, a whole lot of people behind him going, Oh, Kevin, what are you doing? What are you on about? But he was wonderful. He saw a time when we would embrace the whole country and our history and our first Australians in a manner that was respectful, uh, proud and progressive. Agreed. I think, you know, a lot of the national sporting bodies have had um, a deep history of connection to the game, but also that internalised pressure from multiple First Nations representatives, um, particularly in their backyard. I think if, um, I, you know, have only started in August and what I've started to see in history is that, you know, our national teams play overseas a lot and there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of, pressure from community I think to really activate as much as it has been in recent years and with the rise of the game um, in the first First Nations game across multiple sports that's only increased the public profile and I think as over time um, what football has had differently is such a large cohort of multicultural communities which has further embraced First Nations people from the get-go, um, but I don't think football has been necessarily as specific as it could have been. Mm. But um, what what I think there was comfort in was that football has always been a safe space for people of minority groups, as, as we know of many First Nations, multicultural, LGBTQ uh, members have always had a, good, a reasonably good experience in the game and have, we've had the most uh, representatives at our top level. So I think that's kind of where the comfort's sat. And now, um, you know, not only as a sport but as an organisation, I think as we're getting more progressive and more established in certain spaces, we're seeing that there is a need to be more specific to engage and tell the stories of our First Nations players um, not not as just a part of diversity and inclusion, but more that it has been that it is a sleeping giant and it has been for many years because it's just gone with the flow. Um, and other and other national sporting organisations, I think, have have real have tapped into that early, but they've also been driven by um, First Nations uh, leadership, whether uh-huh. that be from advisory groups or um, you know particular positions that are in the organisation and things like that. So now as a wider society and corporate Australia are moving in that direction because of the likes of, um, you know, reconciliation action plans, 
um, that's where we're at at the moment. So it's a great enabler for us to to move move from. And what it's not always necessarily that we're starting last, but I think we've got lots that we are able to to learn from other sporting codes that have done this work before. So we don't have to make the mistakes that they did prior. Courtney, it's a really good point you raised. I remember when we had uh, uh, John Didlitza in to talk about his book, uh, there was a chapter that really stuck out to me uh, of I think it was Charlie Perkins um, and, and John Moriarty and, and those sort of real pioneers for Indigenous footballs in Australia being actually welcomed by the ethnic clubs. They weren't treated as, as second-class citizens. No, so as, treated as equals. Exactly. Mm. So we, we do have uh, some history of... Uh, of including First Nations people um, in our game, uh, but what do we need to do now to to catch up to those some of those other codes who, whether it's you know tangible progress or whether it's you know they're selling that story a little bit better? What do we need to do to catch up? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of work to do. I think it's um, making the game appealing for our mob as well, and um, you know, relatable. I, I mean, you look at the Matildas at the moment, two of the most prolific members of the squad are First Nations women. Um, but I think it's telling that story here and um, having our young women um, not only just see them, because often we hear the, the phrase, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. But I think it's further. It's it's more than that. I think it's Much more. going through analysing where the gaps are in participation and access. I think it's um, us working out how to leverage our current processes programs pathways and identifying yeah where where does it stop are we losing kids early to different codes and and why is that how can we um dismantle it but also kind of use football um you know as a catalyst for social change and it's not always just about us getting matildas and socceroos it's also about getting um people to have positive relationships with exercise and using sport as a way to create unity between people, um, educate within our sphere of influence. Um, You know, we've got the hearts and minds of billions of people across the world. We should be integrating um, Indigenous identity and culture into who we are as a national identity. I think you often hear sport is the backbone of Australian society. And if we are, you know, um, a sport that's, you know, associated with that, we have a yeah quite a bit of work to do now to hmm. bring that culture forward and um not only just you know use it as a as a space for advocacy but use it as a space for celebration hmm. and um you know it's not about necessarily you hear the words you know being diverse and inclusive and they're definitely the right words to use but it's more than that i think it's how do we embrace um first nations people and it's not just embracing people by um, having certain flags and places and things like that or Indigenous grounds. It's about how do we ensure that our clubs are always safe spaces um, and that and that our football clubs also um, embrace the First Nations community around them. So, you know, there's that. And create a separation mentor. From, yeah. It's a like mentorship. Kind of, exactly, exactly. And, um, yeah, creating those two-way relationships that are mutually beneficial as well. Uh- uh, we're, we're talking to Courtney Hagen, and uh, she's got an enormous job ahead of her, uh, part of a tremendous team at Football Australia doing something seriously exciting. It's an initiative to, to, to bring um, not only balance but to, to get us to reach out to make sure that we do the right thing with the first peoples of this country. And we've had them in, in our sport before, and I remember Charlie Perkins saying he felt at home at uh, Panhellenic in Sydney he felt like he was one of the boys. He felt like he was a hero, especially when they won. Uh, and the same applies. A few weeks ago, we had the great joy to to uh, reach out via Zoom. To, we went to Goa yes. to speak to David Williams. They call him Willow, Will of the Wisp. He's a tremendous young man, an Indigenous footballer, first Australian. But you know what he was saying to us? And this will fill you, I hope, with enormous excitement you know what he wants to do over the next few years as he winds down his career and, and moves on? He wants to be a serious agent for change. He wants to be that, that – and I don't, want to be, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Josh, mm. tell me if I'm wrong. He no. wants to be a sort of bridge 
because he's been through all this. He was. I remember how excited he was when he was at Fury in in Queensland when he came to Melbourne Heart. He was one of our young, exciting footballers, and he reflects on what he could have done and what he did do, and how much more he can do now. And he reckons he's now in his prime. He's <laughs> he, he's telling us, but he feels an enormous mission. And I think, and I'd love for you guys to be able to reach out to David Williams, and we've got his details if you need them, and I'm sure you can get them. Um, he is one of these, again, exciting, young, um, intelligent, yeah, intelligent young men who, uh, and we have intelligent young women, Kaya Simon, uh, Lydia Williams, and others. But seriously, here's a professional who's playing his trade in the Indian Premier League. He's put his wife and his children in Townsville to one side for a couple of years because he needs to build a future for them. Uh, he's doing the FaceTime thing, much as what, what we're doing now, to keep abreast of what he's saying. And he reminded us how difficult it is living in a, in a lovely hotel with the palm leaves and the beach out the front, but he can't get outside <laughs> because he, unless, unless he goes to training. Yeah, in the bubble. So it's in a bubble. Uh, but he was also telling us of how exciting it was and, and, and what a mission he was on. But he also felt that he had a more important job to do. And I reckon it's the next one, the next phase of his mm. career, which could help you, me, and every young boy and girl um, who wants to and loves this game and wants to, want to join it and be a p- participant. What do you think? Exciting? To have oh, someone absolutely. like that? To have someone like that? Absolutely. Shake the tree? Honestly, I think it's almost, um, I'm not even actually that surprised, to be honest, like to to even think of the names you were just talking about before, the likes of Charlie Perkins, uh, you know, John Moriarty, Gordon Briscoe, they're all, um, you know, fellas that had a a great career in the game, uh, some shorter than others, but then followed, um, you know, work in advocacy and, and being agents of change. So that must just kind of be the legacy that football has created, um, for, you know, for our First Nations footballers somehow, um, not quite naturally and subconsciously, you know, even Jade North, for example, he's gone and, and had his career and now he's he's going off to, um, you know, create change. Adam Sirota, Harry Williams, like there's so many more. Um, and you sort of think like this must just sort of be the, um, you know, the energy and the culture that, that football brings out in people, I think. Something that I've noticed from working in other sporting codes and, and being in, associated in other sports myself is that um, there's a great deal of passion in football and passion for each other and passion for equality and equity. And I think that transcends off the field as well. So it's really exciting to hear um, that David's thinking about that sort of stuff because I think that's, um, you know, that's our cultural obligation as First Nations people is not to only you know, rise and be role models, but it's also to reach your hand out and give back to community as much as you can. So um, that's, yeah, that's truly special to hear. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to, to reach out and tell me how this how this chats and how he's on the hook. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that, that is really special. So, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that with me. No, no, it, really means cool. a lot. it means a lot to us. He's a and tremendous young man. Of him, you know. uh, yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask you, Courtney, uh, what is the uh, the feedback that you've been getting from people like Jade North? What's the their lived experience and, and what they wanted to, to bring in and let Football Australia know about in this space? Yeah, I think, um, you know, firstly, there, there have been people that have kept this game alive in First Nations community before the national body have started to take full focus to it and we should acknowledge those people um, for that because, you know, that, that takes a great deal of passion and effort to do um, with, with some support of the, of the national body. But um, from what I've heard, you know, football has been something that's provided um, a lot of our mob who do participate in it. Um, with a great sense of, of joy and um, opportunities to travel. I've, we have the likes of Tanya Oxaby as well, which is a different kind of story, who's on our National Indigenous Advisory Group, who, um, you know, is a, is a coach at Chelsea Football Club and, you know, grew up in WA, is a, you know, Yamaji woman. Um, you know, how on earth did she end up over there? I don't know. But that's just the kind of opportunity that football has provided her. And like we were talking before about, you know, cultural obligation and what it means to be, you know, a First Nations person. It's not just um, 
you know, seizing opportunity and, and um, taking up the spaces that you should, but also, yeah, reaching out and giving back to community. So we get sort of a great mix of different experiences um, from past players. We've had a lot of support from um, other people who are, you know, other First Nations people who are big fans of the game that work in different areas. And then, yeah, the likes of people like Kaya Simon, who are currently still playing, supporting us, and um, Tanya Oxidy, who is, yeah, um, in a different realm, but coaching, which is really, really cool. At least so, she's in a decent um, football yeah, club. Yeah, she, At least she's in a, a decent football club called uh, Spurs Tottenham. Don't get George started here. Here we go, <laughs> here we go again. No, uh, I wanted she to ask. Me- she mentioned Chelsea. I had to. I had to. I, had, I couldn't let that go to the wicketkeeper. <laughs> I think that's three Spurs mentions. Yeah, I think three, we should play three. a sting every time. Yeah, true. true. Uh, I wanted to ask about the reconciliation uh, action plan. Obviously, this early stages of the process here. Uh, but what are the the next big steps that have to be taken by the governing mm-hmm. body? Yeah, so like like you said, it's, it's it's first steps. It's kind of putting the boots on before we step out in the field, but it's ensuring that um, we've, we've got those policies and processes in place, and I know those words are probably quite, you know, boring to the average punter, but they are important for us to ensure that, you know, stuff is constitutionalised and um, not only that football, um, you know, are responsible and respectful and safe in, in every way, but also as an organisation that we... Um, you know, have more First Nations employees and and change the face of the game also from a leadership perspective. And that comes from us, uh, you know, leaning heavily into this newly established advisory group, but also um, using that as hopefully a domino effect out to our member federations and, and also club land as well. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights today. We really appreciate it. And uh, we also appreciate what Football Australia is, is now looking to do in this space. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. So uh, best of luck with it. Thanks, Legends. All the best. Courtney Hagen from Football Australia talking about the Reconciliation Action Plan that's been launched today. Uh, George... We've got. We've put her in touch with uh, with somebody. Put her in touch with David Williams. You might now, like to contribute. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think there's there's a lot of scope, and um, I like the fact that there are two young people who are passionate, who are driven, and they've got opportunity. That's the thing. Uh, what have you made of the hour and a little bit that we've done? It's it was been... interesting. We've had a chance to talk to Nick Galatas, mm-hmm. who's the AAFC chair, and he he's talking openly and positively about something exciting. A lot of people. Don't know if it can happen. Other people saying it must happen. It, it's a, it's an interesting conversation that's being had. But let me tell you what was really exciting was the fact that 30 football clubs of quite some standing have put pen to paper. They've signed on to be part of this very first national second division. That's the thing, George. Everyone's been talking about can it happen? Will it happen? Well, that's what Nick came on to say. It's going to happen. Mm. You know, this is the intention, uh, the date. You know, if it's late 2023, maybe it'll get pushed down the track a little bit if it has to be. But, you know, it's going to happen. That's it's going to happen gearing soon. themselves. Yeah. So the question is, how do we do it in the best possible way to give this league the best chance to succeed um, and, and grow the game? Yep, I, I think it's tremendous. We also got a chance to catch up with Chris Bambridge, uh, a former FIFA referee, and he said uh, to all the keyboard warriors and a few of them uh, 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 ex-journos, guys, relax. Be football fans, of course, by all means. Scream and moan and hate the opposition, but leave the referees alone because we're not going to make them better by firing you know, bullets at them all the time. The, the, the key thing is to help them get better. And the only way we can do that is review their decisions, get them alongside us, showcase them, uh, showcase the problems and, and say to them, if you were a better position, would you have made this decision? And of course, VAR has its own unique uh, you know, quality about it. Um, I, keep, I think the thing that I liked a lot with, when we talked to Chris was the fact that you've got one, two, three, five seconds, or 10 seconds, whatever it is, have a mm. look. If it can't, you can't make sense of it, uh, there's not enough evidence in there. If there is enough evidence, make the decision. It's interesting. I mean, you're I'm, a ref. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a country in the world that has successfully implemented VAR. It's um, it's a matter of contention. I know, but I, as, I don't think we're alone referee, here. As a referee, do you like ceding your decision making to someone else? 
No, not really. <laughs> well, uh, therein lies the problem. I guess it gives you someone else to blame, but uh, no. Well, I, well, when I hear the words clear and obvious, I know we've got a serious problem. It's too vague. Look, <laughs> I played cricket for 25 years, yeah? I was a wicketkeeper, and I remember there were times when I took catches and we all appealed, and I wasn't sure if it was a snick or not, and the umpires put the finger up. I can remember one glorious moment in history for, for, for our club. We were playing in a semi-final at the Sydney Cricket Ground and the late, great Jim Burke mm. um, snicked a ball, the first ball of the day, down the leg side, and I've gone full length and taken it. The umpire's gone, not out. Uh, and he got to about 90 and he's flicked it one outside off stump and I've gone in front of first strip and uh, first slip and taken the catch with, uh, with the other hand. And we've all gone up and the referee's gone, you're out. Jimmy Burke, beautiful, super canny man. Great shame that he took his life years later. Mm. He walked past me with that smirk. You know, he looked at me and said, not bad, Danikian, two out of two. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate banter. Oh, I felt ill for a week. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Look, uh, and of course, Courtney Hagen, who is the lead doing a tremendous job and super exciting to have young people fired up about bringing our first, uh, uh, you know, Australians closer and closer to a game that they've really been playing for nearly 100 years. Mm. I think we've got to reframe the conversation. Yep. It's not spot that, on. I mean, football is as Indigenous a sport as any other, really. Correct. I mean, and look- Willow gave us a sense of that. David Williams gave us a mm. sense that he's got a job to do and he's not afraid to, to talk it up. I like that. We've got to catch up with him and talk to him in the next couple of weeks. Um, time for us to go. Uh, until next week, uh, Josh Parrish, George Denikian, in the chair at FNR, State of Our Football Nation. You're listening to the State of Our Football Nation on FNR.